This morning I want to preach a message entitled, Faith to Accept God's Will. Faith to Accept His Will. Um, I know that we have talked a little bit already about faith, faith in His Word, um, and we have, we have kind of gone through some, a number of things, faith to believe His Word, faith to see as God sees. But this morning, I want to just talk to you for a few minutes about faith to accept His will. Um, we're going to see some examples in Scripture. In fact, uh, this morning, we're going to go back, if you have your Bibles, I want you to just, we're going to get there in a moment, in a few moments, go back to the book of Judges. Chapter 7, we're going to go back into the life of Gideon a little bit this morning and uh, to really see this. When we think about the will of God for our lives, uh, sometimes we think that it is this mysterious kind of thing that is, you know, it's sort of out there that is almost unattainable and yet somehow through some divinely inspired transmission, lightning bolt experience that the will of God is just somehow made real or made known to us. And I have found in, oh my goodness, a little more than 25 years of ministry experience that the will of God is not always like that. Uh, Recently having a conversation with my oldest brother who pastors our home church up in Maine, uh, I, I, the way that he put it has just stuck with me over these last couple of weeks uh, is that sometimes we bump into the will of God more than we knowingly walk into uh, the will of God. And a lot of times when that happens, we still have to believe that God is in it and that God is going to have His way. Now, we could talk about the will of God and what the will of God is. In fact, you read the Bible, you will find, in the, especially in the New Testament, you will find that the will of God is something that can be known. It is something that we all can experience. In fact, some of the things that are known as the will of God for our lives, which we'll touch on at the very end of the message, but some of those things can be, they are so intensely practical that we sort of push them aside as if somehow it's just sort of, well, this is part of my Christian belief and this is part of Christian action. But I believe with all my heart that the will of God translates into action. It's not something that you walk around and say, well, I know the will of God in my mind and it's so great that I know it. The question is, what are you doing with it? And for many of us, faith has to translate into actions. And sometimes we find that as we're going through life, we say, well, I've got faith, I've got faith. James talks about this in his epistle. It's all about faith turning into action. He's saying, show me your faith by your action. Show me that you have faith by doing what the Word of God has said. And sometimes, in order for us to get to that place of action, we have to believe that God desires to use us. You know, I know that a lot of times we think about some of the 
you know, for instance, some of the things that people can say to kind of try to intimidate us from even beginning to talk about Christ or talk about our faith. Some of the things that the world now believes and holds to as the gold standard of their new kind of morality, their new kind of living, way of living. And we can, get, we can think about those things and think, oh my goodness, I, I could never ever open my mouth and begin to say things the way that, that I know that I should as a Christian because what if they ask me this? Or what if they say this? Or what if they say that? And yet, I believe with all my heart, brothers and sisters, that the more that we have faith and trust in His Word, that we can know, that we can believe that His will for us is to open our mouths to the glory of God and that God will use us in an effective way to reach our generation. Now today, there are really only two things that I want to present to you. And faith to accept His will can be difficult at times when it defines or defies human sensibility. We've got to have faith to accept His will when it defies human sensibility. In other words, there are times in the will of God that things just don't add up. It doesn't make sense. In anything in life, we find, and some of us at least, I think, realize that in life, the more you, the, the more of something that you have, maybe the better off. Any company will tell you that they're not making enough money. They need to make more money. The idea of a company and a business is really essentially, it all boils down to one thing, to make money. And so when they're attempting to make money, the money that they currently are bringing in, though it may be good and they may have profits and they may be able to pay their workers and they may be able to to buy new equipment and do a number of things, there is that sense in which more is still going to be better. Think about your bank account for a minute. More, right? Wouldn't it be better in some ways? For us in life... For humanity and for humans, our thought is more is always better. Uh, I, you know, the, the phrase, I understand it and I understand what they're saying. You ever, ever hear the phrase, less is more? Right? And I used to say, I, jokingly, I would just say, I don't think so. I think more is more. You know, it just, less is less. But I sort of understand what people, there's a simplistic approach, there is do a little bit less than you did and and hopefully have an impact with that little bit and so on and so on. And there is an element of biblical and scriptural and spiritual truth to that, especially when it comes to God and His interaction with our lives. Let's go to Judges chapter 7 and I want to read... Uh, We're going to read down through, starting at verse 1, down through to verse 8. The Bible says this. Now remember, a couple of weeks ago uh, in the message, Faith to See as God Sees, we were in, in the story of Gideon, in the very beginning part of it, that God saw in Gideon something that Gideon did not see in himself. But now we see the outworking of that, that Gideon got on board with what God saw. 
in Gideon. He saw a mighty warrior, a mighty man of valor. He, he did not see a weakling, a man who was afraid. He didn't see a guy that we, on the surface of reading that first part of the chapter in chapter 6, that we see as we encounter Gideon, we see a man afraid, a man who's hiding out, a man who's just trying to survive, and God shows up and says, you're a mighty warrior. And Gideon, you know, we, we know the argument a little bit that he had with God. Gideon didn't feel like a mighty warrior, didn't feel anything like that. But God sees at the heart of an individual. But now Gideon has gotten on board with the plan of God, with the purpose of God for his life. And so now he is going to be taking action and is taking action to muster an army to come against the Midianites and to end the oppression once and for all. Chapter 7 says this, Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his man, uh, men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You, here it is, have too many men. Now, if you go back into chapter 6, which we're not going to do, but you go back into chapter 6, and you read there, the Bible says that they were, the Midianites were as the sands of the sea. They were so many in number that the, 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 the individual, whoever it was, that wrote the book of Judges under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit did not even bother to give a number in counting how many there were. There were so many. Now Gideon is here, and Gideon has showed up, and he's gotten a whole lot of people to get behind the plan of God. He has is, he is mustered an army. And you've got to imagine that Gideon is feeling like, all right, maybe I am a mighty warrior. Maybe I am going to be what God has intended for me to be. And I've got a lot of people around me who believe in it. And all of a sudden, God shows up and says, Gideon, less is more. That, when you're in an army kind of situation facing war, whether it is modern warfare or whether it is ancient warfare like it was at that time, folks, the overall human idea of less is more doesn't fly. It doesn't work. More is more. In fact, outnumbering them would be better but at this point, we don't even know and we don't even, we don't even draw from the text that Gideon, with his what we know to be 32,000 men, had more than what they had. But at least, look, you've got 32,000 men who have come from all over the land of Canaan, from, from Israel. They've come all, from all over the place and they are behind Gideon and they are going to come against the, the, the mighty Midianites once and for all and we're going to end this oppression. And in verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. What? For me. You see, when God is in the thing, God doesn't need a whole lot to be effective. God doesn't need 32,000 men. God only really essentially probably just needed one. There was another occasion in Scripture, we're not going to go there, but one of David's mighty men all by himself struck down 800 Philistines in one place on one day simply defending a bean patch. 
God doesn't need a whole lot. We need more. We think more is better. We think that the numbers have to be greater, that it's got to add up to more. Now listen, don't translate into this into everything in, in terms of our church. And Well, pastor, let's just, why don't, why don't I go here? I'll go to this church and go to that church. Well, that, that, that doesn't apply here, folks. More is better. More is more. But what I'm saying is God doesn't need more for this church to be effective. God can use what we have so that then we can grow. So that then the release that God wants us to have will come forward. Brothers and sisters, what we've got to do is continually keep our eyes on Jesus and say, God, you make up the lack and let it be that your glory is revealed in this church. But he says, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel, listen to this, may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. You see, God had allowed Midian to oppress Israel. He had allowed it to happen because Israel had turned to sin. They had gone after foreign idols. They were doing their own thing. They were going their own way. They had forgotten God. They were now a generation removed from Joshua and his, his effective leadership and his, his uh, strength as a man of God. They were now a generation or so moved or removed from the passing of Joshua, and they're just going after whatever it is that they want. God says, you know what? I, I, I don't know how to teach you the lesson. Sometimes you got to learn the hard way. Here come the Midianites, and they're going to oppress you. And when are you going to just, you know, finally turn to me? But now God is getting ready to deliver the people, but he's got 32,000 men. And God says, that's too many for me, because you know what's going to happen in all of this? It's going to happen that in this situation, brothers and sisters, what's going to happen is, is that man is going to take the credit for what God has done. And God forbid that in our lives as believers we begin to take the credit for anything that God has ever done. God has done great things in your life. He might have done something wonderful and we look back and you know what? So often we are so prone to say, well, it was this person in the church. It was that person. It was the pastor. It was the pastor's wife. It was somebody in our past. And they were, you know what? No, it wasn't. I'm sorry. It was God. You know what our problem is in the church sometimes? Our problem is, is we're elevating people to a place and a status that they shouldn't even have. We are elevating individuals from our past and from our lives into a place where if it's not like what they did it, we're not satisfied, we're not happy, and it ain't going to happen. Brothers and sisters, if God isn't in this place, it ain't going to happen. If we don't say that it's the Lord who has done great things, then we are doing nothing more than worshiping individuals. God says, look, I'm not saying God doesn't use people. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying our focus tends to change. You know, the same way that our culture, you know, fawns all over American Idol. I, I, I'm nothing against American Idol. You know, there have been some really powerful Christians who have come through there. 
some believers, and they're singing the glory of God. And you know what? Some of them, they didn't win, but they're winning now because they're singing to audiences all over the country about Jesus Christ and what Jesus can do. They're testifying of His grace rather than having some big big record label, you know, where all of the, all of the stuff and the sinful stuff is flowing through the bands and the, the groups and the singers and all of that gets caught up into that. You know what? They're lifting up Jesus. But even with that, we, we've got to be careful that we're not elevating individuals to a place that they should not be. God says, I've got to get the glory in this situation because the only way it's going to happen is it's going to happen when I see that you have exactly what I tell you you have to have. Now, he says, you've got too many. He says, I don't want them to boast and to think that it was their own strength that saved them. The last thing that we should ever, ever begin to do is boast and say, well, I did this. I did that. I did this. I accomplished this in my life. And boy, if I, didn't, hadn't, if I hadn't done this, I don't know where I'd be. You know what? If Jesus hadn't gotten a hold of your life, where would you be? If Jesus hadn't come down and rescued you, if Jesus hadn't come down and changed your mind and changed your heart, if Jesus hadn't outnumbered the sin that was controlling you, where would you be today? You wouldn't be anywhere. But I want to tell you that God can do great things and He doesn't need very much. In fact, He kind of shuns the idea of more is more. He's a more, less is more. Because I'm going to make up the difference and I'm going to show you what I can do. And God can do great things. Listen to what the Bible says. It goes on. And he says this in verse 3. Announce now to the people. <laughs> this has got to be something. I, you can imagine what Gideon's thinking. Announce to the people, now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left. He said, all you scaredy cats, out of here. And there are 22,000. Can you imagine? He's standing here. He's looking at a 32,000 strong army. And all of a sudden, you know, two-thirds of them are gone. They're hit. They leave. And they're walking away. They're going home. They're like, yeah, you know what? Really, I was really, really afraid. God says, I, I, I can't have fear in this situation. God cannot use fear. He's not going to use it. He's just going to, he says, listen, you're afraid. Go home. Go home because I'm going to do this thing my way. So I want all of those who are afraid, I want you to leave. They turn around, 22,000, the Bible says, leave, while 10,000 remain. Now I can imagine Gideon in his heart is, you know, it's sinking already. He's thinking, no way. This defies the odds. This defies any kind of human sensibility that this could actually be the will of God. But listen to what the Bible says, verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Say, what? 10,000. I only have 10,000 now, Lord. I had 32. Fine, they're afraid. They're going to run the day of battle anyway. So you know what? Okay, but 10,000 really is not a lot of people against what the Bible doesn't even bother to give a number for. So Gideon took the men down 
Listen to what it says. He says, there are too many men. He says, take them down to the water, verse 4, and I will sift them from there uh, for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. If I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men, I, you know, and I don't know if Gideon was standing behind at least 300 saying, look, please, lap like a dog. Scoop it up in your hand and lap it out of your hand like a dog. And he's looking at all these guys just kneeling down, sticking their heads down in the water, getting a drink. And he's thinking, no, please, 9,700 men go down there, kneel down, and stick their faces in the water. And 300 men. Scoop it up. I once heard my youth leader give an excellent description of why it was so important for those 300 that they scooped up the water and lapped like a dog. He said, the 9,700 men who stuck their heads in the water would not see anybody behind them. They wouldn't see. They were careless. They were reckless. They, didn't, they did, weren't concerned about being aware in the day of battle and being alert. They just stuck their heads down and put their faces in the water and boom, somebody comes up from behind, that's it, lights out. But the ones who scooped the water up, he said they could pause, look around, take a drink. They could take some time and just make sure and stay alert. Listen, brothers and sisters, I think in the New Testament, the Bible tells us, and I think this is why God says it in the New Testament, when Peter writes and tells us that we are to be alert and to be watchful because our adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion seeking who whom he may devour, you've got to be alert in the day of battle. You can't be sticking your head down there saying, whoop, look at all the water, let me drink. And not only that, when you drink that way, you might get too waterlogged. Do you ever have on a hot summer day, you just drank too much water, and then afterwards your stomach's like, oh. You know, it's like if you had eaten too much, but you feel you, you just drank too much water, and now you're kind of waterlogged. That's what happens. I used to get thirsty and in Maine I would go down to this little brook they had the cleanest water running through the brooks literally you just stick your head in a little little water there as it's running you drink and you drink and you drink but you get up and you're like oh I, I drank too much I can't run I'll get a side stitch I can't do anything and because of of all of that he's saying listen these guys are going to be alert but 300 really it defies human sensibility. But that, brothers and sisters, was the will of God in that situation because in the end what was going to happen was that God was going to get all the glory in every situation. The Bible says 300 men, verse 6, lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. 300 men. Can you imagine against such a mighty army? Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. Now he's got 300 men, and the Bible lets us know the rest of the story we know is history. 
God used those 300 men in in a way that was unbelievable and unthinkable, but was the will of God. The Bible says that in the, in the night hour, they lifted their, their, their torches and they blew their trumpets and they shouted with a great shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And the Bible says that the Midianites got so confused in the middle of the night, seeing all these torches around them, they thought the army is so great, it's so powerful. They got so confused, they started fighting one another and were defeating one another. It's as if God was saying, listen, you don't need a lot. It might defy human sensibility, but the will of God will prevail in this situation. The will of God will help you to overcome. Now, there are times when the will of God defies human sensibility. We see it in the Old Testament, but let's go to the New Testament. And I think that there is none no example greater than somebody that we talk about at this time of the year. In fact, I talked a little bit about him on Tuesday night. And I want to just go back to the life of Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading at verse 18, and we'll just go down through uh, to verse 25, the end of the chapter. Because Joseph stands as an example of that in the face of what would at least have appeared to be a major, major scandal. And the scandal was, the woman that I am betrothed to be married to is now pregnant. I know in our modern society it's no longer a scandal anymore, but sad to say, it's, it's supposed to be. Because, you know, ultimately it was the sign that she had been unfaithful to the point of committing fornication. And so Joseph... The Bible lets us know he was a righteous man. We're going to read it. Let's read it right now so that you can see. The Bible says in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child. And here's how important this phrase is, brothers and sisters. This is vital to our belief as Christians through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, which he could have according to the law, and and rightfully done so, and rightfully disgraced Mary publicly and in a way that would just completely shame her. She likely would have lost her life, and obviously the life of the unborn baby would have been lost as well, but the Bible says he had in mind to divorce her quietly. He says, I don't want to, you know, I love her too much. I care about this young woman, but I don't, I don't want to do it that way. I don't want her to be publicly disgraced. Somehow tuck her away somewhere. I'll divorce her. It will be as if nothing had ever happened and she can go on her life. And however miserable her life will be from this point, it's going to be that. But the Bible says this, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said to Joseph, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I want to back up for a minute, though, and go to verse 19. Because in verse 19, it is the absolute proof that we have that Joseph didn't understand what the plan of God was and what was going on. He didn't understand what the will of God was at that moment. 
And there are times in our lives where we don't understand it. And if there is anything that defies human sensibility, it is the idea of a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That doesn't happen, right? Biologically, we're, we're, we're well aware that does not happen, ever. Except once. And it was this once. Now, Joseph is on the outside of this thing, very much heart involved. He wants to marry Mary. He wants to, to, to be the father of her children. But now coming to find out, what? You're going to have a baby? What? How is this even right? How am I supposed to handle this? And Joseph has no idea of what the will of God. It defied human sensibility in this situation. Brothers and sisters, there are times in our lives where we cannot figure out what God is trying to do and what God is doing, and it almost seems as though it's the opposite of how it's supposed to be. And yet, God is going to reveal to Joseph in short order This is all part of my plan. This is all something that I've got going on. Let's read on. The Bible says this, but after he considered this, an angel of the Lord, I read that verse. Let's go down into verse 21. The Bible says in verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, which has great meaning because it really essentially means because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the New Testament uh, and and the Greek version of the name Joshua, which means deliverer. He is going to save his people, but he's going to save them from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. Here it is. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means... God with us. When Joseph woke up, and we talked about this Tuesday night, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this whole thing for Joseph defied any human sensibility. This went against his idea and understanding of what was right and what should happen. But brothers and sisters, when God is involved, God can do abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. We've got to trust in His will. We've got to have faith that His will is the best way and the best plan for our lives. Now, that is Gideon and that is Joseph. We've got to have faith to accept His will when it defies human sensibility. But we also have to have faith to accept His will when it's uncomfortable to us. I'm grateful today we walked into a building and some of you might have been a little chilly, some of you might be a little warm in the building, but this building's not freezing cold this morning. It's comfortable. You sit in a pew. By the way, those pews used to be all wood. No upholstery, no padding, no nothing. They're a little more comfortable now for you to just kind of nod off to sleep while pastor's preaching. A little more comfortable. Feels a little bit better to you. We like our comforts, don't we? We enjoy, maybe you got that special chair, you know, in your house. I, I'm, still, I'm, I'm still 
I'm still angling one of these days for a recliner. A lazy boy. Oh, yes. Bring it, Jesus. Uh, I, I had one for a short period of time. Then I don't know what happened to it. I think my wife said, I don't like that anymore, and gave it to her folks. I don't know. I, I just, but I had to have it. In fact, it was after years ago, before we had kids, we lived in Evanston. I had to have my appendix out. And, you know, you know t- today the, the appendix operation is just the tiniest little, little cuts. I mean, this surgeon came in there with a scalpel and just, you know, cut me open. I went home. I was, I couldn't sit on the couch. The couch sank down. We had to hand me down. I couldn't lay in the bed. I couldn't, I couldn't get in and out of the bed. I was in so much pain. And the only way that I could sleep was in a recliner. My father-in-law, my poor father-in-law, Pastor Impagli, went out. He got a recliner, brought it to our house, and, and there I sat. And that recliner was so comfortable. And I got to, and I, you know, recuperated in time. And, and it, it worked just great. But now I've had my mindset on, you know, a lazy boy because they're just so, so... Com- we love our comforts. We love those special things that make us feel comfortable. Maybe it's a comfort food, you know? It's one of those things you go to when just, you know, you've had a bad day at work and you sit down with that big fat bowl of macaroni and cheese, Sister Jeanette, and, and you just... I, I, I'm not angling for anything, but maybe I am. But, you know, you just you sit down with that and you're just, ah, it's that comfort food. You know, those things that just sort of help things along a little bit. And you, you've got these routines that help you to feel certain comforts in life. And even though things might not be going as well, we've got that idea. But you know what, brothers and sisters, if there is anything that I can say about the Christian life, there's nothing comfortable about the Christian life. I realize I'm not selling it to anybody today who may not know Jesus, but the bottom line is, Jesus said in this life, you will have afflictions. There are those in the book of Hebrews, which I'd like you to go to. Hebrews chapter 11. Those in the book of Hebrews that stand as, as individuals who are uh, uh, people who believed God, in the face of great impossibility. God did something mighty through them. We're going to read. We don't have time to read the whole chapter, but we're going to start at verse 32. Verse 32, and we're going to read down through to the end of the chapter. Uh, let's see. Hebrews 11, and verse, starting at verse 32. The Bible says, and this is, you know, first part of this is really great. It's already talked about Moses, already talked about Abraham, Enoch, uh, you know, talked about Abel, talked about uh, a lot of individuals who did what God wanted them to do by faith. The writer now gets to toward the end of the chapter, and he says this, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith, listen to what they did. This is awesome. You're like, yeah, I want to be a kingdom conqueror. They, came, they conquered kingdoms. They administered justice and did it with great wisdom and effectiveness. Gained what was promised. Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, and we're all down with that, right? Ah, escape the edge of the sword. Yes, be victorious. I'm an overcomer. 
whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Oh, yeah. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Awesome. How awesome is that? But wait, right here in the middle of verse 35, there's a shift. Something changes. Something happens. The Bible says others were what? Tortured and refused to be released. Here's why. They were given an option. Reject and renounce your faith as believers or, and you can go free. Or you accept the death penalty for your faith. One or the other. What's it going to be? The Bible says that they refused to be released. Listen to what it says. So that they might gain a better resurrection. Listen to verse 36. Some face jeers. Ah, you know, you Christians, you wackos, you fundamentalists, you whatever it is that they want to call people these days. They, they face jeers and flogging, that is whipping, beatings, while still others were chained and put in prison. Comfort? Nothing comfortable about this passage. The Bible says they were stoned, verse 37. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. I don't hear too many people, when they preach faith, they're preaching on this passage. Oh, no, no, this is the passage they like to avoid. Because faith has to bring more comfort. It, for, for much of what we hear in today's generation of preachers, and, and, and when it comes to faith, faith always brings more. But for them, it brought more persecution. For them, it brought more destitution. Oh, no, not now. Not, not in this day and age. This, is, this doesn't happen now. Listen to what it says. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destituted, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what has, had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Brothers and sisters, there are times where faith does not necessarily lead to a comfortable life. There are times where you're believing and your belief is a as a Christian does not necessarily mean that on your workplace you're going to be looked up to and revered. You're instead maybe going to be looked down upon because of your stance for the faith of what it is that you believe in. Maybe even in your family you're made fun of. And in your family, some of you, you, you have been put off and put away simply because, you know, they think you're a little nuts. There are a few screws loose. And if you listen to the crazies on HBO or whatever it might be, be with their, their, their whack talk shows. They might even suggest that Christians, if you believe in that, then clearly you have a mental problem. That's the new one. Did you know that, by the way? 
that somehow belief in Jesus Christ and belief in what he stood for and what he stands for, that faith is now coming to a place where it's not creating comfort. It's creating an uncomfortable situation. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you today that those who went through these uncomfortable things that we read about in Hebrews 11 were individuals who were looking for Him. They were looking for God to do something greater and something mighty. And they believed that no matter what happened in their lives, no matter how they died, no matter what happened, they refused to renounce Jesus Christ, but they stood for Him in the face of great persecution and great, great ad, uh, ad, adversity. They stood for what was was right, even though they had family members who said, you know what, we're going to just forget you, we don't care about you. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews is really writing to a group of people who probably were, in fact, Hebrew Christians who had been already uh, been, been shunned by their families, had been cut off from, from family livelihoods and cut off from family inheritances. They had been put out simply because they wanted to serve Jesus Christ. Comfort? There are times in our lives where it's not so comfortable. And we've got to have faith to believe that God will allow His will to come through our lives in those situations. Those unnamed faithful in Hebrews 11 give us a picture of the will of God being carried out in their lives. Say, Pastor, I don't want any of that. I don't want the persecution. I don't want all of that. You know what, folks? It doesn't really matter what we want. If it's His will, we've got to say, yes, Lord. Uh, Yes, Lord. I'll do what it is that you want me to do. I'll suffer how you want me to suffer. If it is that you want me to go through great adversity and great pain and great difficulty, then I want you to know that in all of that, God is not, He's going to bring you through stronger on the other side of that thing. Listen, somebody once said, how are you ever going to know you have faith until you're in a good fight? Most of us don't want, we just don't want to have that kind of adversity from family, from coworkers, from friends. We don't want to have to face that. And now, quite honestly, from our government, we're faced with it as well. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, we have to stand for righteousness and stand our ground for what is right before God and before Him alone. Do not Power to the world. Do not say, well, it's it's, it's going to be too difficult if I stand for righteousness. No, I want you to know it will be horrible if you give in to the flesh and you give in to the world and you say, well, let's just go the way of the world. Let's cower in a corner. I want you to know that's not going to fly on the day of judgment. One other individual, and then we close. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. I've always been fascinated with this passage of Scripture because John the Baptist was one of those individuals who it seems, you know, was indisposable, essentially. He was one of those guys who was, you know, just... There are people around that you think they're irreplaceable. You just can't... You can't find another one of them anywhere. And John the Baptist, when you read the early part of the New Testament, the early part of the Gospels, and you read about his life, you're thinking, this is the, just the most unique guy that you could ever see, who was heralding the birth of Christ, or not the birth of Christ, heralding the ministry of Christ, and he was a forerunner of 
Christ. He was not the Christ himself. He was an ordinary man, uh, you know, born in sin as we were. And yet, the Bible indicates that he was, he was powerful in his ministry. In fact, he would, he would see the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming, those religious leaders of the day. And you know what? He would immediately start calling them snakes. Can you imagine? You know, this, this was one of those guys who out on the street corner, would be out on the street corner probably preaching on the streets that nobody was listening to. No, but they were listening to him. They were coming out into the desert to see him. They were coming out there. They were fascinated by him. But all of a sudden, the Pharisees come along with their, their religion, and he'd start, you brood of vipers, he'd say. Who warned you to, you know, to flee from the wrath to come? I mean, he, he, was, he didn't mince any words, you know. He didn't, he didn't put it, you know, you reptilian people. I mean, he just, there was no way around it. Of course, there's really no way around calling somebody a snake. It just, you know. But he was one of those guys that you think he's, he's irreplaceable. You can't get another one of John the Baptist. But we get to Matthew 11, and John is in prison. And I think, at least for a moment of time, John is thinking, wait a minute. Not that he thought about it himself, but maybe in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I've had such a unique ministry. Why am I here? What good am I doing here? And in fact, it's not going to be long after Matthew 11 that John is going to, you know, bite the dust. You know, as we like to say in our house, es muerto. He's, he's gone. He's going to go. Hey, John is just, he's about to be history. And, and he's, he's trying to get his head around this. And listen to what the Bible says. Matthew 11 and verse 1, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? In other words, Jesus, I'm sitting here rotting in prison, and this is not what I had in mind. Is this what you had in mind for me? Is this what God has in mind for my situation, for me to just somehow be wasting away into this moment where it's uncomfortable and things are not going so well. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that in situations like that, we have to learn to accept the will of God and have faith in the will of God that God's will is better than our own will. John struggled with it. John was sitting there in prison thinking, i got to get out of here. There are some more Pharisees who need to hear, you know, they need to hear it. i got to get out of here. There are more people who need baptizing. There are more people who need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I need to deliver that message. God, what's going on? And so he sends word to Jesus. I want to tell you, when you don't understand what's going on in your life, don't call your friend. Don't sit there and complain to your husband or your wife. Don't sit there and complain to somebody else. Don't call a coworker and just say, I can't figure it out. Don't know what's going on. You need to get with Jesus. You need to send word to Jesus. You need to go to him. I love the fact that John said, I'm not messing around here. I'm not sending word to Peter or John or one of the other disciples to say, hey, can you slip a note 
to Jesus. Can you find out what's going on? He said, no, I want you to get where I want you to go right to Jesus. When you don't know what's going on and you don't know the will of God does not look like the will of God. It looks like the pain of life. When you are feeling that, what you need to do and I need to do is we need to run to him and say, Jesus, I'm going to give you my best right now, but I, I I don't understand what's going on. I need a word from you. I need to find out from you what's happening. And I want you to know that essentially the word of Jesus back to John was, I've got it all under control. Now we know that John went to be with his maker much sooner than at least he had planned. And what any of us in Scripture, I remember reading, reading the whole thing of John getting beheaded a long time ago when I was just a boy and hearing the story and thinking, Lord, how come so soon? But you know what, folks? We can't, we can't sit around saying, well, how come this? How come that? There are no answers. There is no why of your pain sometimes. There is no answer as to why you are going through what you're going through. And even if you knew the answer to why, would you be satisfied with the answer? I know that for many of us, we're going through or we go through difficulties and we sit around and we say, why is this happening? Why do I have to feel this pain? Why do I have to feel this grief? Why do I have to feel what I'm feeling today? And we sit there and we're asking that question. But the bottom line is, if we knew the answer, it wouldn't take away the pain. Because the pain that often we feel is just from being in the situation itself. It's not from some philosophical idea of let me find out why. It's just, it hurts. But in the middle of all of that, I want you to know God's will is greater than our own will. God's will for our lives will help us to sustain us, give us the grace that we need to keep moving forward when it doesn't seem as though things are going the way that they ought to be going. I close with this verse of Scripture. Say, well, those are all the mysterious things of the will of God. But you know what the will of God for your life is? Amongst other things, these are just a couple of verses of Scripture that I want to just read to you. The Bible is this, says this, and you don't need to turn there, just listen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. And then it goes on and talks about what it is that we are to do with our bodies as believers, that we're to control ourselves, control our urges, control and and not fall into any kind of immorality. But then going into chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, we, we get this verse out at Thanksgiving almost all the time. But this is an ongoing thing for us. It, it should be. The will of God. The Bible says give thanks. Listen. Where and how and when. In all circumstances. The good, the bad, the ugly. The, the things that make you feel like you're sinking and going under. The Bible says give thanks in all circumstances. Now listen to the Bible. It says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Say, I don't know what the will of God is. I just know I'm uncomfortable. Here's the will of God. In your situation, in your difficulty that doesn't look right, that doesn't look like it's the will of God, the known will of God is for you to give thanks in all circumstances. That is what God wants you to do and to be set apart for Him and to be used by Him in spite of your pain. 
Do you know that some of the greatest hymns that we have ever had, some of the greatest hymns that have ever been written have been written out of the depths of pain? I wish I could sing it, but I can't. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, help me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm worn. I, 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 that hymn is so powerful, but do you know that that was born out of the depths of grief? Out of the depths of so much pain. I believe it was Thomas Dorsey who wrote it, wasn't it? Something, it's Thomas Dorsey. Out of the depth of losing his wife, losing, a, I think, also a child, losing his family. Oh, precious Lord, take my hand. I don't understand it, God. I don't understand what I'm going through. I don't understand the great difficulty, but God, I'm going to trust in your will today. Can we stand together right now?